Y'all may be seated. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, man, we're continuing a study in the book of Acts and, and in other places as well, but we're looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. One of the reasons that I have wanted to do this study and one of the reasons that I'm excited about uh, getting to share with you over these next several weeks or months is that the Apostle Paul, if, if you grew up in church, then chances are you grew up uh, learning right from wrong, learning a, a, a bunch of do's and don'ts and things that we, um, that we teach in church. Uh, and the Apostle Paul was, a, was a, a real legalist, and yet God transformed him. And so we're looking at his life, and we're looking at how God transformed him. And today we're going to, uh, to take the next step in this journey of Paul. Uh, Paul's going to go on three missionary journeys and then a final journey all the way to Rome. And today we kind of start this first missionary journey. And so um, as I thought about this, I, I thought about where we're going to go today. And I wondered, uh, as, I, as I thought about this question, if we've ever really wished that we could just see inside of somebody. You ever had somebody that opposes you and you go, okay, I, I don't know why they're opposing me. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what their motive is. I don't know what their heart is. But man, I wish I could see inside of them the way that Jesus saw inside of them. I wish I could understand people and, and just see beyond the facade and, and, and just get to the heart of the matter and really know if their motives are pure or if they're impure, to know if what they're saying is true or if it's kind of twisted. And, and sometimes we just can't see through that. And, and we need spiritual discernment. It's going to be essential if we're going to do God's work to be able to see what God sees and be able to, to understand what's going on down deep inside of a person. And today in our story that we're going to look at, that's, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul uh, needed. I fear that in our world today, and even in our churches today, that uh, there are many that are spiritually blind. They lack the discernment to recognize spiritual truth and lies, and so they're easily misled. Um, we lack sometimes the discernment to understand if, if, if this is just a, a physical attack or if it's a spiritual attack that's coming from Satan. And so in, many in the, in the world and, and many in the churches are, are blind to this, uh, this spiritual stuff that we live in and, and to know what is of God and what's not of God. And so uh, today I wish that we could, uh, could learn from the Apostle Paul uh, the importance of us depending upon the Holy Spirit, the importance of us learning some spiritual discernment and allowing the Holy Spirit to, to quicken our spirit and to know what that feels like and to know how to respond so that we can walk in the Spirit and accomplish things that you cannot accomplish in the physical realm. So today, we're going to see how important this, this spiritual discernment really is for all of us. And that may be a new term for some of you. It may be something that, that maybe you haven't really thought about before. Maybe you, you, you don't even consider the fact that we live in a spiritual battle, that we live on a spiritual battlefield. And maybe that sounds mystical, or maybe that sounds like it's a, a, a sci-fi movie, but the reality is, for us as believers, we live on a spiritual battlefield. Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the principalities and the powers of darkness and, and, and all these things that happen that, that we can't see with our own eyes. And so we want to take you there today. We want to look at how these, uh, these spiritual battles play out. And, and, uh, but what I'm going to start with this morning is kind of a, a brief update of where we've been with the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was born as a, a guy named Saul. He was born in a town uh, called Tarsus that was kind of up in the mountains. And uh, his mother died, we understand, around age 9. His dad kept him there till about age 12. And around age 12, he would have been sent down to Jerusalem. Uh, somehow they secured a, a teaching spot uh, or a spot under the teacher uh, Gamaliel, who was the world-renowned teacher of that day. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a guy who was well-respected. And if you could get a seat at his table and you could learn from him, 
then you had really arrived. And somehow Saul of Tarsus got that spot. And so his dad sent him down to Jerusalem. He was taught and reared under this great teacher. Uh, he, was, he was there. Uh, the Bible says that he was advancing beyond all of his peers in Judaism and was, was on the fast track really to the Supreme Court of their day called the Sanhedrin. Um, he became a violent persecutor of the followers of Christ. After Jesus died and the gospel begins to just spread, he was a defender of Judaism and wanted to stomp out Christianity. And so he became a violent persecutor of, of the Christians. And uh, in fact, he was going to Damascus, a town to the north that he was going to go to and arrest believers and drag them back, put them in prison, and probably have them executed. It was on that road to Damascus that this bright light blinded him, knocked him to his feet, off his feet to the, to the ground, um, and that Jesus confronted him. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? At that moment, everything began to change for Saul. He realized that the Jesus that he had been told was dead, uh, was alive. And, uh, and he, he loved the Lord. He was trying through all of his work and all of his legalism to try to, to, to impress God and to be the best that he could be. And all of a sudden he realized that the God that he thought he was serving was a God he was actually persecuting. And so he met Jesus. He was called then to take the gospel to the Gentile world. God told him that he was going to suffer for the gospel. And man, that was an understatement if there's ever been an understatement. Um, he begins to, uh, to, to understand this call, and, and he spends three years in the Arabian desert. Uh, he meets with the Lord, and, and, the, and, and Paul would later say that, that in that desert, God revealed to him the gospel, and God told him the truth about who Jesus was. He introduced him to grace and what that looked like and what that felt like and how he could offer that to other people. He goes back to Damascus and, and, and is ready to begin this great big ministry after three years away. And uh, he's not there for long before they start death threats on him. Uh, they post guards at the gate. They're going to capture him and kill him. And, and his friends lower him down in a fish basket over the wall out the window. And he escapes. Uh, and he heads down to Jerusalem thinking, okay, I'm going to go back to my, to my, my familiar area. And I'm going to, to, to speak in Jerusalem. And while he's there, uh, he's only there for 15 days before there's death threats issued. And an angel meets him in, in, in the temple and tells him, Saul, you've got to get out of here. They're going to kill you. So once again, his friends help him to escape. They take him down to Caesarea, to the port city. They put him on a boat, and they send him back to Tarsus, which is his homeland. He goes to Tarsus and spends the next eight or nine years in Tarsus. It's called the Hidden Years because we don't know a lot about what happened to him, but we pick up bits and pieces in other places that Paul wrote that led us to believe that that, that was a time of, of great rejection by his family. You can imagine a dad sacrificing everything to send him off to school and to let him be the, on the fast track to the Supreme Court. And, and right at the pinnacle of this career, he walks away. And he says, that stuff is not real. It's not, it's not right. And he begins to follow this guy named Jesus that everybody's heard was crucified and was dead. Some think that his father's the one that arranged probably the first beating at the synagogue. Uh, the synagogue would, would take uh, defectors and people who had erred in their theology, and they would try to beat some sense into them. And, and we think that during these hidden years, these eight or nine years in Tarsus, he was beaten uh, three out of the five times that he was beaten with 39 lashes. Um, it was a whipping that would leave your back just shredded. Uh, it would leave you uh, in, in great pain. And, and they think that during those years is when Saul was uh, suffering that rejection. I shared with you a couple weeks ago that part of the reason that Saul continued to take those beatings was not that he was trapped and he couldn't get out. 
At any moment, Saul could have said, you know what, I remove myself from the synagogue, you have no more authority over me, you can't touch me. And Saul would have been excommunicated from the synagogue, he would have been set free, never again to be beaten. But Saul, because he loved the Jews, knew that the synagogue was a place the Jews would go, and that if he could stay somehow connected to the synagogue, that he could keep going back and going back and sharing the gospel. What would happen was, because of Saul's great credentials in Judaism, when he would attend the synagogue, they had a section marked off for teachers to sit. And because of his great standing, he could go sit in that spot. And after they had prayed a little bit and read some scriptures, they would turn to these visiting teachers and say, Brother, do you have a word for us? And that always opened the door for Saul to be able to share the gospel. Now, usually he would get stoned or beaten or chased out of town every time he did it. But, but when they would beat him, that would purify the sin and give him permission to come back. And Saul kept taking those beatings in order to keep sharing with the Jews. So all that took place. And uh, meanwhile, in a, in a town called Antioch, which was north of Jerusalem, Antioch, a revival broke out among the Gentiles. Uh, the Jerusalem church, the head church, sends Barnabas up there. Barnabas goes to check it out and to make sure it's authentic and make sure this is really of God. And Barnabas gets there and sees the Spirit of God and knows that God's in this and, and that this revival is just taking off. It's led by laymen, guys that aren't even trained, but they just met Jesus and they wanted to share it with other people. And all of a sudden, a church springs up and Barnabas shows up and everything's going great. And Barnabas is like, dude, I need some help. And so he goes to Tarsus and he hunts and he hunts and he hunts. He finally finds Saul. Brings him back to Antioch. They spend a year there teaching the church in, in Antioch. While they're in Antioch, there's some, some uh, prophets show up. The prophets show up and say, hey, look, there's going to be a famine and, and you need to start now collecting. And so they begin collecting. They hear the Jerusalem church is in great dire needs. And so they send Saul and Barnabas down to, to Jerusalem to deliver the offering. While he's there, now this is year 1415, uh, after his conversion, while he's there, he compares notes with Peter and says, this is the gospel that God gave me in the desert and in the wilderness. And Peter says, man, that's perfectly in line with the gospel that he gave us as we walked with him for those three and a half years. They extend the right hand of fellowship to Saul and Barnabas and send them back to Antioch. And that's where we're going to pick up our story today. This revival is well underway. Uh, these guys are, are there and they're teaching and they're helping when they're there, but the neat thing about the Antioch church is that when Barnabas took off to go get Saul in Tarsus, the church never missed a beat. When Saul and Barnabas took off and headed down to Jerusalem to deliver the offering and to be gone for a while, the church never misses a beat. They come back and the church is still in the midst of revival. In Acts chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, it describes the, the church in Antioch. It says, but the word of God increased and it multiplied. That means they're making disciples and this church is just multiplying again and again and again. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and when they accomplished their service, that means they delivered the offering, they'd finished what they were sent to do, and they brought back with them John, whose other name was Mark. John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. He was a, a young... Um, um, follower of Jesus. He's the guy, if you remember when Jesus got arrested in the garden, it said there was a disciple who fled naked. That's John Mark. He's the original streaker, okay? He was in the garden while Jesus was being arrested and, and is scared for his life. And he just takes off running naked from the garden. That's John Mark. Uh, some believe that John Mark's mom uh, owned a, a, a large home 
that that may have been at the upper room where the disciples had the, the Lord's Supper last. So he's very familiar with Jesus, familiar with the disciples. Um, and now he goes back from Jerusalem to Antioch with Saul and with Barnabas. And so he is there with them. This Antioch church was amazing. Like I said, it was begun by laymen. Uh, these unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene had helped start the church. These leaders are called by God. They're equipped by God. They, they've never been to seminary. They've never had a formal education. They're Gentile men who are sharing the, the gospel. Um, and they're, um, uh, or they're sharing it with the Gentiles. They're Jewish men that are sharing with the, with the Gentiles. But, but these guys uh, are, are called and they're equipped. Uh, but they're also humble. They're not arrogant at all. When Barnabas and Saul step in, they just kind of pull back and say, Hey, guys, you guys lead for a while. Y'all help us out here. Bring your gifts and let's use them. Uh, the church had multiple leaders. They used their gifts to strengthen the church. And this, thir- this church was thriving to the point that the lost world around them noticed something different about these guys. And the Bible says that, that, that the believers of Christ were first called Christians in Antioch. Now that was kind of a, 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 a negative term to start with. You're a little Christ, little Christ people. And the Christians go, you know what? That's a name we'll wear with great pride. You know, uh, you're, 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 you're Jesus followers. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take that title. And you call us Christian if you want to. So they were first called Christians there in Antioch. And, and this church is a bunch of spirit-filled believers who are led by spirit-filled leaders. And so in Acts chapter 13, we kind of pick up and it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Also, there's Barnabas. They list some of the teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, meaning a a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So in this church, there's many prophets, there's many teachers. You've got great leadership. And then they've got these super leaders that that are there. And they list five of those. He he says there's prophets, first of all. Those are the guys that would proclaim the word from the Lord. Sometimes it was a new word from the Lord, like the prophecy about the famine. And sometimes it was just a proclamation about the scriptures and, and how those things applied to their lives that were there. But the prophets would be the proclaimers, and then the teachers would be the explainers. The prophets would say, this is what the Lord says. And the teachers would come back and go, okay, and this is what it means. And this is how we apply it. And those two work seamlessly together. Uh, they they complemented each other. And these five leaders was Barnabas, who was a, a guy gifted in the area of encouragement. And he kept he, he was kind of their anchor that held them true and made sure that they were staying true to the word of God. He kept encouraging them to stay on track and to stay focused upon the gospel. There was Simeon called Niger, and that Niger is a, is a Latin word that meant black or dark-skinned. So this is a dark-skinned man that is there. He's one of the leaders of that church. Some say that he may have been this, this Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. And the reason they think that is that, that this man's son, he had two sons. And let me just look here in, in Mark 15, 21. It says, uh, this is when Jesus is being carried out to be crucified. It says, and they compelled a passerby named Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus made him carry the cross. Rufus is later going to be a huge figure in the Christian church. And they think that this Simon that's in Antioch may be the father. Maybe this may be the dad of Rufus who was there in that church. But whether he is or not, there's a man named Simon. He's a dark-skinned man, and he's a leader in this church. There's a Lucius of Cyrene, uh, possibly one of the evangelists. Remember when, when the church of Antioch was started? It said that men from Cyrene came in and helped start this church. This may have been one of the evangelists who, who knew the Great Commission and knew the gospel and brought it to the town. So some of the leaders may have come as the church was planted. He may have been one of the church planters. 
There, there's this man named Manian who, who was a member of Herod's court. He was a former politician, go figure, who got saved and became a leader in the church. Here's people, Saul, this persecutor of God, a persecutor of the church who stands up now and is helping to lead this church. So they've got five main leaders and a whole lot of prophets and teachers that are filling in. And, and this is a lay-led church where God is doing a work even among the lay people. So these five men share the leadership. It's kind of a dream team. And, and, and again, it explains how that Barnabas can take off and go find Paul and how that Paul and Barnabas can take off and go down to, uh, to Jerusalem and be gone for a while and the church never miss a beat because these people were committed to the gospel, not just the leaders, but the laymen were committed to carrying out the gospel everywhere they went. They were led by these gifted leaders, but make no mistake, it wasn't just the leaders of the church that made it great. The church was filled with strong laymen. See, it was a layman that took the gospel to the streets. I believe it was a layman's work that, that, that allowed that name Christian to be attached because they didn't just see and say, oh, that's Rob's church, or that's John's church, or that's Saul's church. They said, this is a place that's filled up with these Christ followers. It was the layman that earned that title, Christian. It was the layman who took the gospel out. And, and so all the cylinders were firing. They were full steam ahead. And this church is just rocking and rolling. They've got this dream team of leaders. And they gather together. They're God-focused. They're God-glorifying. They're God-gifted people. And as they worshiped the Lord and they fasted, which showed the seriousness of their faith, the hunger for God. They're asking God to guide their next step and to show them what they're to do next. And while they're in the middle of all that, they're asking God, just make yourself known. And God shows up. When God's people pray and fast and seek after the Lord, the Bible says, when you seek me with all of your heart, you're going to find me. And these guys are doing that. They're seeking God with all of their heart. And God shows up and God gives them some instructions. In Acts 13, 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. How many times do those two things go together in our world? Worshiping and fasting. What we tend to do is to worship fast. But they're worshiping and fasting. They're, 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 they're gathered together. They're seeking the Lord. What, what I think in this is, is not that they said, okay, next Sunday we're all going to fast. I think they're gathered together and they're worshiping God and they're so caught up in their worship of the Lord, they worship right through their meal. They worship right through lunch or right through dinner. They, 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 they don't look at their watch and go, man, I've got to hurry up. I, you know, Thomas, my stomach's growling. Thomas, I'm this morning, you've got to preach fast. My stomach's growling. All right, here we go. They're so caught up in the worship of God, okay, they don't even realize they've missed lunch. They're worshiping and they're fasting. They're focused upon the Lord. And it says, the Holy Spirit shows up and says this, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Whoa, 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 whoa. We got five main leaders, God, and you want to take two? And the Spirit says, yeah, that's what I want. You think they're a little surprised that he showed up? A little surprised maybe at, at his request that, that two of their great leaders would, would, would be called out? Can you imagine everything going smoothly and all of a sudden two-fifths of your leaders are, are taken and sent somewhere else? Had this church been inwardly focused? 
Had this church been all about themselves and not about the glory of God and the gospel of God and the world hearing about Jesus Christ, had they not been outwardly focused, they might have objected to what God was calling them to do. If they had been inwardly focused or focused upon themselves or focused just upon growing their little church, they might have objected. But this was a giving church. This was a a gospel-centered church. It was a sending church that that constantly was sending people out to make a difference. And so they didn't flinch, not for a moment. They heard God, and immediately they obeyed. Look at verse 3. It says, then after fasting and praying. By the way, that was not a stalling technique. They're in the middle of worship. They're in the middle of fasting and praying. And God says, do this, and they continue to fast and to pray for these two that they're about to send out. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. It's a symbol of them commissioning these guys to go do what God's just called them to do. And then they sent them off. So the the praying and the fasting was not a stalling technique, but it was how they worshiped their God. It was how they received their empowerment for ministry. So they were so in tune with God's Spirit that when the Holy Spirit spoke, their thoughts were no longer on food. Their thoughts were no longer on, oh my gosh, how's our church going to make it? It's not the question of what are we going to do without Saul and without Paul. We've done fine without them because we've got God here and God's going to continue to lead us. Nothing was more important to them than hearing clearly from God. Their hunger for God was greater than their hunger for food. And I wonder today, what would happen if we ever worshiped like that? What would happen if when we worship, we set the watches aside and we just said, Lord, I'm going to stay here until you speak and I'm going to stay here until I hear from you and I know what your, your, your next step for me is. So after they heard from God and they adjusted their hearts to his will, they lay their hands on these guys and they send them off, commissioning them for their mission. They send them off with their blessings and their prayer support, and thus begins the first missionary journey of Paul and of Barnabas. Just so you get a feel for what this is going to be, because when you read it in the book of Acts, you can read it in about three minutes, their whole first missionary journey. It took about two years, experts say for them to complete this journey. So even though we read it quickly and we think, man, they went here and they went there and they went there, we kind of get the, the, the picture of a presidential campaign where they, they, they land, they say a few words, they get back on the plane, they do their stump speech in another town. This is about a two-year journey that they're going to go on. It's going to be two years before the Antioch church hears back for them. So after 15 years of preparation, Saul is finally ready to do what God had called him to do way back there on the Damascus Road. He's going to take the gospel to the Gentile world. All those years of preparation were about to pay off huge. I heard the saying a while back, it's been been quite a while, but but you can grow a mushroom overnight, but an oak tree takes years. What God was interested in doing with Saul was not an overnight quick fix, but it was years and years of pouring into him and getting him ready. Some of you may feel that in your spiritual development, God's just going way too slow. You got saved and you just want to jump right in and just turn the world upside down. But listen, it it takes a day to grow a mushroom. It takes years to grow an oak tree. Which one do you want to be? If we're going to be the oak trees that God uses, then then guys, we've got to put down some roots and we've got to take some time. We've got to go deep with the Lord. And that's exactly what Saul had been doing for those 15 years. 
So in Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12, it says this. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So let's go back to our map, if we can do that. Um, so they're here in Antioch, okay? In Antioch, they sail, they sail over here to this island called Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is the home of Barnabas, so it's going to be a familiar place for Barnabas. But what they're doing is they're in Antioch, and they take, there's a little river that runs right here, if you can see that, and it goes down to the port of Seleucia. So they probably put them on a boat in Antioch and let them just ride the boat down the river, and they get to the port there in Seleucia. And then in Seleucia, they're going to catch a bigger ship, and they're going to head over here and land at this, uh, this eastern port of, of Salamis. Now, that's about a two-day journey from Antioch down to Salamis. It doesn't look far on our map. It doesn't look like a big deal. But that would have taken them about two days to get from Antioch down to Seleucia. So now they're on the island of Cyprus. And what they're going to do, let me just point it out so we don't have to keep coming back to the map over and over. But what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to work their way across this island. And they're going to end up over here at, at Paphros, which is the, the capital. And there is the proconsul, the, the leader of this, of this area, who is going to, uh, to call for Saul and Barnabas to come and to speak with him. So even though Scripture is going to say this in one verse, that they sailed to Salamis and they worked their way across the island, this is, this is a long process for them to get there. Two days to, to get to the island, and then they began to work for months to work their way across this island sharing the gospel. So they're sent by the Holy Spirit. They're under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. They're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and Seleucia is this, is this port city that's on the southwest. And, and they, um, they, they get there. And, and um, again, Cyprus is the island that Barnabas is from. So Barnabas continues to take the lead all the way through this, this work on the island. He's seen as a general leader of that. They've got with them John Mark. They said that Mark was their assistant, and he traveled with them. Some would say that that word assistant meant that he was their document carrier. If they had their scrolls and stuff, that he would have been in charge of, of maybe making sure that those scrolls were with them so they could study the scriptures and they could interpret those and share them with other people. Uh, when they arrived at Salamis, that port city, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, here's, here's Paul's pattern. Everywhere that Paul goes that there's a Jewish synagogue, his first stop is to go in the synagogue. Saul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But being a former Jew, he still had that passion for his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to know Jesus. So everywhere that he went, that there was a Jewish synagogue, he started by proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue. Never lost his love for the Jews. Remember, he took the beatings so that he could go into the synagogues. Because in the synagogues were his Jewish brothers that he still wanted to know the gospel. Paul will later write, man, I, I would give up my salvation if it meant that the Jews could come to Jesus. He never lost that passion for those that hunted him down, for those that persecuted him, for those that beat him, for those that he knew they were spiritually blind just like he was. So he starts here, his very first stop, and he goes to the synagogue of the Jews. The rule of thumb was this, that if there were 10 Jewish men that could gather together, that was enough to start a synagogue. So any community they went in that had at least 10 men usually had a Jewish synagogue that was there. And the first thing that, that Saul would do was be to find that synagogue and to go in there and begin to explain to the Jews the gospel. Now, again, they had John there to assist them, verse 5 says. So they waste no time. They begin to share this, this gospel in the synagogue as, as we see the pattern develop. Um, and, uh, and they work their way now all the way across this island from the east over to the west. 
And, um, and Barnabas leads them because he's familiar with the island. Uh, we're not given many details about their island adventures. I mean, literally, it, it just says they, they get there, they start, and they make their way across the, the island. Uh, we're not given those details until they get to their last stop. When they arrive back at that capital city of, of, of Paphras, uh, there we're introduced to two people. So listen to this. Of all the people they met all the way across this island, we're only given details about two of the people they met. They met a proconsul named Sergius Paulus and his sidekick magician named Bar-Jesus. So you got a guy, Sergius Paulus and Bar-Jesus. Not to be confused with the real Paul and the real Jesus, okay? Here's this, this, this proconsul. He's the Roman guy that's, that's kind of leading this province. He's the one that's in charge of this. He's got a sidekick magician that's named Bar-Jesus. That, that name Bar-Jesus means son of the Savior. That was his stage name. I'm the son of the Savior. Paul's going to say later on, you're anything but the son of the Savior. In fact, we'll read here in just a minute. Saul's going to point him out and say, you're the son of the devil. Now, when you hear the term magician, we think of somebody in Vegas that's doing a magic show and card tricks and sleight of hand. These, these were not it. In fact, the, 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 the title magician was taken from the, the name Magi. Remember when Jesus was born, the Magi, the wise men, came and, and brought to him the gifts? Uh, early on, this term Magi was not a negative thing. It was not tied in with the occult and, and all that kind of stuff. The, the term Magi just meant a, a wise man or a seer or somebody who possessed great knowledge that they could share with other people. And, and, um, and that's the way it started. But by the time it reaches this guy, it's, it's gone into the occult. And it's gone into astrology. And it's gone into all these magical arts and these demonic spirits. That's where we're at when we meet this guy, is that he's this kind of a magician, not the kind that would have visited Jesus in, in, the, um, in the early days. Um, so he's got a stage name of Bar-Jesus. It meant son of a savior. But he was anything but the son of a savior. Uh, Saul would later call him a false prophet and the son of the devil. So look what happens here in verse 6. It says, when they'd gone through the whole island, as far as Pharos, then they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet. So he's got a Jewish background. But he's a false prophet. His name is Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul. They're side by side. They're buddies. And the, the proconsul's name is Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So this is a guy who's well-read. He's well-studied. He's probably studied a lot of the different religions of the world. He's dabbling in a little bit of everything, but he's curious. And he's interested in hearing what, what Paul and, 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 or Saul and Barnabas are, are teaching. And so it says this man of intelligence, he summons Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of God. Now, we're not told how he came, became aware of Saul and Barnabas. We're not given a lot of the background information here, but we are told that he summons them to come and to talk. So evidently the Holy Spirit stirring his heart to, to, to at least create a little bit of a curiosity of, of what's going on in this, in this, with these guys. And um, so he's got this, this well-educated man. He's got this flair for speculation. Thus he's got a little sidekick with him. Uh, but the, the apostles, they, they don't pass up the opportunity to share the gospel. And so Barnabas and Saul head over to his place to meet with him and to talk with him. Um, when we're walking in step with the Holy Spirit, we recognize the opportunities that the Holy Spirit sends our way. Paul and Barnabas don't want to miss an opportunity on this trip. Anybody that asks to hear the gospel, we're going to share the gospel with them. So as they share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, something undeniable begins to happen. 
The more they share the gospel, the more this magician gets worked up. The more they begin to share the truth, the more he tries to pervert the truth and, and twist it. Now, he's got the ear of this proconsul, this, this magician. He's their buddies. He's used to listening to him. He's, 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 he's got his ear. And so this, this presence of this satanic spirit is felt. And before long, it's evident to Saul where that spirit rests. And so look at verse 8. It says, but Elimus, that's the other name of the magician, same guy. Elimus the magician, for that's what the meaning of his name is. He opposed them. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So as they share the gospel, there's a battle going on. They're sharing in the power of the Holy Spirit. This guy's working in the power of an evil spirit. And, and, and as they share the gospel, he tries to twist it and pervert it and to turn this, this proconsul away from the faith. He doesn't want him to come to know Jesus Christ. And the spiritual battle rages. Uh, seems that the more powerfully they share the gospel, the more this guy's going to oppose them. But Bar-Jesus was doing all he could to turn the proconsul away from the gospel. It was a direct attack from Satan, and Satan fighting for the soul of Sergius Paulus. And this battle rages. Saul knew exactly where the attack was coming from. It wasn't just a flesh and blood thing, but this was from Satan, powers of darkness at work. Guys, listen, anytime we get serious about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can expect Satan to show up and to oppose it. You're crazy. You're misled. You're blind if you think that you're going to share the gospel in the power of the Spirit and Satan's going to sit back and go, wow, that was nice. He's going to do whatever he can to try to, to fight that. And so... Um, here we see that, that Saul's going to take some action. In fact, here's the first time that we see Saul called by his Greek name, Paul. This is where we begin to see the change from Saul to Paul, okay? Understand this. It's the, the name Saul was a Hebrew name. He was named after the first king of Israel, the king Saul. That was a, a Hebrew name. The name Paul is a Greek name. Now, who's Paul fixing to be sent to minister to? The Gentile world, the Greek world. So he switches from the name Saul, which was a Hebrew name, over to the Greek name, which is Paul. Again, becoming all things to all people in order that he might win some to Christ. So he takes on a Greek name, which would be a little more acceptable in the Greek world where he's about to minister. And so it says, so Saul, whose name was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely essential to what we're fixing to see. And he looked intently at him. He had identified the source of the satanic oppression. And he knew that, that, that this was more than just a confused magi magician. It was more than, than just somebody going, oh, I don't understand. Can you explain it? This is a guy who is actively opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bar Jesus at this moment was an instrument of Satan. So let's, let's stop for just a minute. Let's, let's ask the question, how do we know when we're encountering opposition? Is that just somebody that's confused or somebody that's just mad? Or is this something that Satan is doing? How do we know the difference between when Satan's involved and when he's not? I think there's two extremes that we need to avoid in this situation. There are some folks who, who spiritualize everything and demonize everybody who ever disagrees with them on anything. That's one extreme. 
The other extreme are those who, who have no kind of discernment at all and just see everything as just, a, well, they just didn't like it, I guess, and it's all there, and they never recognize the hand of Satan. And we need to avoid both of those extremes. One that seems to bury its head in the sand when it comes to spiritual matters, and the other who wants to find Satan under every single rock. You know, there, there's, a, there's a balance here, and so we need some spiritual discernment. And, and, and Paul is getting ready to call this guy out, not because he hates the guy, but because the truth needs to come out and needs to be distinguished from the lies that this guy has been spreading. So Saul in verse 10 says this. He says, you are the son of the devil. Now, what did he call himself? Bar Jesus, son of the Savior. Saul says, no, no. You are the son of the devil. You are an enemy of all righteousness. In other words, all truth. You're the enemy of that. You're full of deceit and villainy, which means lies and wickedness. And he says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? In other words, the gospel is, is simple and it's straightforward. And you're trying to complicate it. You're trying to twist it. You're trying to pervert it. Will you ever stop doing that? How did Paul know that this attack was from Satan? Because Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. In the book of 1 John, it gives us some ideas of how we can distinguish between those that are really believers and those that are not. Let's look real quick at three passages in, in 1 John. Because if we're going to do spiritual battle, we need to be able to recognize who's with us and who's not. And 1 John helps us to do that. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, look what it says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. There's going to be people that show up and say, man, the Holy Spirit told me something. Don't believe every spirit that you hear. But test the spirits. There's going to be two kinds of spirits. See whether they are from God for or because. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there, there's prophets in our world. Some are, are of God and some are, are not. There are some that, that speak for God and there are some that speak for Satan. And there are many, listen, many false prophets that have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, that's not just with their mouth, but with their behavior and with their, with their life. They're, they're confessing day by day by the way that they live and the dependence that they place upon God that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Their life, their mouth, their words, their actions, it confirms the gospel. But he says in verse 3, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So a spirit who, who, who rebels against Jesus, who, who pushes back against the gospel, a spirit who doesn't come in line with the truth of the gospel, that spirit is not from God. It denies or opposes the gospel. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. We tend to think, oh, there's coming a day when the Antichrist is going to come. John says he's already here. There's many Antichrists. And he's already at work in our world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. You've overcome these antichrists, these evil spirits. For he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. You don't need to be afraid, he's saying. Verse 5, he says, they are from the world, these antichrists, these false prophets. Therefore, they speak from the world. They speak a message the world wants to hear. And the world listens to them. How many times have we looked at churches that are being driven by false theology, being driven by a satanic agenda, and that church just grows? And we go, wow, it must be the hand of God. 
John would say, not, absolute, not, not necessarily. Just because it grows and just because it tickles your ear does not mean it's of God. You've got to test the spirits and see if it lines up with the gospel. Some of the largest churches in America are not driven by the Spirit of God. It's easy to gather a huge crowd. Just say what they want to hear. Test the spirits, he says. The ones from the world speak what the world wants to hear. And the world's happy to listen. But we are from God, verse 6. And whoever knows God listens to us, to the gospel. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, by the response to the gospel, guys, we know the spirit of truth and we know the spirit of error. So you can't measure success by the size of the crowd or the sweetness of the message. You've got to measure the spirit, test the spirit, by asking the question, does this come back to the gospel? Bar-Jesus was actively opposing the gospel, and therefore Paul knew and had no doubt about the source of his opposition. 1 John chapter 2, another passage says this, Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. Now look at this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Please listen to this. They went out from us. In other words, they used to be a part of our little group. They used to look like us and sound like us and, and act like us. They, they, they were a part of us and they were considered to be a part of, but they've gone away. They've gone out from us. They've left the gospel. Well, what about those people? Sometimes we hear people say, well, she, she believes in God, but she just really doesn't get around to following God. Or she went to a church and she was baptized and she once belonged, but yeah, now you would never be able to tell that. What does the Bible say about those kinds of people? Now, we know there's the prodigal sons. But what does the Bible say about somebody who walks away from the faith, who, who once looked like they accepted the gospel, but, but now their life is living contrary to the gospel, and they're just out there? What, what does the Bible say about that? They, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. There's a doctrine that we talk about called the preservation of the saints, meaning those who are genuinely born again will not walk away from the gospel. Doesn't mean we won't sin, doesn't mean we won't stray, but we will not abandon the gospel and we will not oppose the gospel. We, we, we stay in the faith. These guys left the faith. They went out. Why? Look at the next verse in, in, in 19. They went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One. There's the Holy Spirit. And, and you have knowledge, this spiritual insight, this spiritual discernment. So I write to you not because you don't know the truth already, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. That's exactly what Bar-Jesus was doing. No one who denies in word or in deed the Son has the Father. In other words, they're lost. They don't need to be coddled. They need to be called back to a genuine faith. 
We don't need to make excuses for them. We need to say, you know what? You, you once appeared to walk with Jesus. What, what happened? Paul's going to write to the Galatian church and says, Galatians, I, I thought when I left you, you were on, on good standing, but, but you've departed from the gospel. What's, what's going on? Did I labor among you in vain? Was my work there for nothing? Have you, have you truly just walked away from the gospel? Because if you have, then you never knew it. Paul's understanding is that, that once you met Jesus and you, you came face to face with him and the Holy Spirit was in you, you're not going to depart from the gospel. John's saying the same thing here. Look at verse 26. Let's jump down to that. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. In other words, the Holy Spirit's going to prompt you in this. For his anointing teaches you about everything. And it's true, it's not a lie. Just as it's taught you to abide in him. So John's crystal clear that, that those who claim to follow Jesus but don't follow those who say, yeah, I believe, but they don't follow, then they're lost. They're liars. They're deceived. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. See how John's so concerned that the church not be deceived? Three different times he's writing. Whoever practices, this is ongoing repetitive behavior. Whoever practices righteousness, walks in righteousness, is righteous as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice, this ongoing repetitive behavior of sinning, is of the devil. He belongs to Satan. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this reason the Son of God appeared. He, was to, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he's been born of God. Again, not saying that Christians don't sin. But listen, if you can dive off into sin and continue day after day after day after day in a life of sin and not feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then something's missing in your life. He's saying those who, who do that, they make this practice of sinning. They don't belong to God. They haven't been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's not a works theology, but it's a theology that fleshes itself out in the way that we live and who we follow. So it's obvious to Saul that Bar-Jesus was following Satan, that he was an instrument of the devil. And so led by the Holy Spirit, Paul calls him out. Now please understand, Paul's not angry with this guy. I think that Paul sees in him himself. What did Paul do before God called him out? Man, he violently opposed the gospel. I don't think we see Paul screaming and yelling and veins popping out in his head and, and this stuff that you see on TV when we're trying to cast out demons. I think he's saying to this guy, listen, you say this, but your, your life is showing that. And, and you think you're, you're doing God a favor, but you're not doing God a favor. And I think that, that, that Saul sees in this guy himself. And Saul still remembered that road to Damascus where God called him out. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who, who are you? I'm Jesus that you're persecuting. 
God loved him enough to call him out. And here, Saul loves this Jewish man enough to call him out. He says, you're the son of the devil, not the son of a savior. You're, you're an enemy of all righteousness, but you're presenting yourself to be the righteous one with the right way to go. You're not. You're full of deceit and this wickedness. What's it going to take for you to stop making crooked straight ways? What's it going to take? Saul knew what it took for him. He was physically blind for days. Which revealed the spiritual blindness that was inside of him. What's it going to take for you to turn? It sounds harsh in a non-judgmental world that we live in today. The world we live in where no one wants to call anyone out anymore. But there was a soul at stake here. There's two souls at stake here. Not just the soul of the proconsul, but the soul of this false prophet, this child of the devil. And Saul wanted him to know Jesus just as much as he wanted Sergius Paulus to know Jesus. There was no time for timidness. So Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, spoke as he was directed. He didn't mince words. He didn't worry about hurting the man's feelings. These lies needed to be exposed. The truth needed to prevail. And Sergius and Bar-Jesus both needed to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's something I want you to, to chew on. A person can't be set free until they realize that they're being held a captive. And a person can't be saved until they realize that they're lost and that they need a Savior. And Paul's going to make that clear here. And, 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 and we need to help people out of love, with compassion, to know that we are all lost and we were all sinners and that we all needed Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit directs us to point out sin, it, it's not to condemn as much as it is to set them free. Or Jesus was spiritually blind. He was being controlled by Satan. He was unable to see the truth of the gospel. And when Jesus confronted Saul on Damascus Road, he was in that same boat. But, but that confrontation where he got called out, before that moment, Saul was blind. But during that confrontation, during that moment of realization, when the Holy Spirit opened Saul's eyes, everything for him changed. So we've got to learn how to call sin, sin. We've got to learn how to call people back to the gospel who've walked away. We've got to learn that, 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 that real love doesn't stay quiet, but real love reaches out and confronts sin, confronts blindness, and says God wants to set you free from your blindness and to call you back to the truth and to the light. We've got to learn how to recognize Satan's presence and his tactics so we don't fight as the world fights, but we fight against the spiritual world. We need to be convinced that truth exposes lies. Satan can't overcome the truth. In the book of John, Jesus came and he's presented as the light. And it says, and the darkness could not overcome the light. You've got to speak the truth. Because without the truth being spoken, lies are going to prevail. So God desiring to save Sergius 
And also desiring to save Bar Jesus brings out the truth. This is who you are. This is what you're doing. And in Acts 13, 11, it says, And now behold, this is Paul. Paul speaks the following judgment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this. He says, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Same thing's going to happen to him that happened to Saul. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. What was taking place in the physical realm was also needing to take place in the spiritual realm. He was already spiritually blind, but he needed somebody to lead him by the hand to the gospel. God was going to use Saul and Barnabas to do that. We're not told if this man ever came to faith in Jesus Christ. But he was blind just as Saul had been blind 15 years before. We are told that the proconsul came to faith. Verse 15 or verse 12, I mean, the proconsul says believed when he saw what had occurred because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So it was the teaching of the Lord that captured his heart. It was this, this miracle of blindness that verified that Saul's God was greater than the magician's God. So what was God trying to show us through this story as we wrap things up today? What's God trying to say? couple things I jotted down. Number one, I think he's trying to show us that we live in the midst of a spiritual battlefield. As long as you're doing the work of the Lord, you're going to be in the middle of a battle. Shots are flying. Satan is opposing. And Satan will love more, nothing more than to silence you and to silence me so the gospel doesn't get out. We're on a spiritual battlefield. Our enemy is alive and well, and he will stop at nothing to prevent the spread of the gospel. He will discourage you. He will try to intimidate you. He will try to silence you. He will threaten you. He will distract from your message. He will send people along at just the most inconvenient time. Right when you're getting to the point of, of sharing the gospel and trying to lead that person to Christ, there's going to be distraction after distraction. Satan will stop at nothing because souls are at stake. I think he also says to us here that we need the Holy Spirit to correctly identify this spiritual opposition and to know where its roots are. I think we also need the Holy Spirit to overcome Satan's attacks. It says Paul was operating under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. We are crazy if we think that we can do this in our own power. We're crazy if we think that we can just walk into any room in our own authority, in our own power, overcome these, these, these attacks from Satan. We can't. And I think he's saying also that the gospel is what sets people free. The gospel's got to get out. And whatever battles we need to fight in the spiritual realm to allow the gospel to get out, we've got to be prepared and ready to share the gospel. Have you been in a spiritual battle lately? You feel like you've been doing battle with Satan face-to-face lately? Because if you're not, you may not be sharing the gospel. You may not be a threat to his kingdom at all. Saul and Barnabas making their way across this island. Called by a guy who has an interest in what they're saying. Come face-to-face with Satan. And were they not spiritually prepared and were they not spiritually ready they would have fallen flat. But God made it aware. 
Spirit gave them insight and direction. And by the time they walked away that day, the proconsul, this Roman leader, had given his heart to Christ. On a more personal note, what this says to me is that I need to take a lot more serious my prayer and my fasting. We need to go deep in prayer. Our worship needs to be more than just a 30-minute thing we carve out on Sundays. But we need to worship through prayer, through fasting, where we get so caught up in the presence of God, we, we lose track of meals. We say, Lord, I'd rather hunger for you than to hunger for food. Fasting may not be something that we just automatically schedule and say, well, today's going to be a a day of fasting. But it may be that we get so caught up in the morning worshiping the Lord that lunch comes and goes and we don't even realize it. This was a church that was fueled and led, this early church, by lay people who took that same challenge seriously. It's what caused them to commission Saul and Barnabas and send them out on this first missionary journey. And I believe that those who are going to be greatly used by God are going to be greatly opposed by Satan. So we've got to walk in the Spirit. The battlefield is real. The attacks are severe. We've got to be ready. And we need others who are praying with us and for us to stand firm. And we need to be fearless, knowing that God has won this victory and that the gospel will prevail if you and I will just walk with him. So let me ask you today, are you ready to step on that battlefield? Do you have the armor on? Are you prepared? Or do you need to start today and say, Lord, help me get ready because I want to be one who shares the gospel. I want to be one who seizes every opportunity. I want to be one, Lord, who, who knows where you're moving and where you're working and I can recognize Satan when he shows up and I can exercise the authority given to us in Christ and I can make sure the gospel is clear. And that it's understood. But we can't do that as weak believers. We can't do that just as occasional worshipers. We can't do that as people who just say, you know, I'll do it when it's convenient. We need to do it every day. And the only way to do that is to walk in step with the Spirit, filled with God's Spirit, dependent upon God's Spirit. So as we pray today, why don't you ask God to make you into that kind of a person? And remember this, it's not an overnight fix, but it's a daily dependence upon Christ that gets us to this place that we can stand and be mightily used of God for his glory. It's got to start somewhere. It's got to start sometime. Why not today? Why not right now? Let's pray.